0: We're going to talk about one of the hottest topics in crypto right now, and that is Decentralized Finance, or DeFi in short. Beyond buying, holding, and selling Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, how else can you make money in crypto? How is it possible to get annual percentage yield of 100%, 1000% or more? What are the risks? What should you look out for when investing in DeFi projects? Let's deep dive into the world of Decentralized Finance Hello, my name is Andrew and welcome to another Chill with TFC session. In this series, we hope to bring on interesting and relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from the people you agree with. Different perspectives shape us to be more well-rounded in our thinking. So in our pursuit of the life we love, while managing our finances well, our guest for today is going to talk about decentralized finance and the exciting trends in this space. What are the metrics to look at in DeFi projects? And how should you think about crypto as part of your portfolio allocation? Our guest is the CEO and co-founder of Cake DeFi, a dedicated platform that enables users to earn cash flow from their crypto. Prior to being an entrepreneur, he spent 10 years as a pro kite surfer and 7 years in medicine. To help us gain an understanding of decentralized finance, let's welcome Dr. Julian Hosp. So Dr. Julian, let's set the stage. What is DeFi?
2: or decentralized finance? Could you define it for us? Sure. So contrary to CFI, centralized finance, which is what the finance that we all kind of know, banks and so on, you don't have centralized parties that are in charge or they can manipulate a certain system. So the very first form of DeFi was Bitcoin. And it's basically creating money. It's creating value and transferring that value. There's no one, no one is in charge. It's an entire community. And there's other applications as well, for example, lending, typical bank business, you you borrow, you lend, uh, someone takes a charge, and a blockchain, a decentralized community could also do that, and they could make money off that. So that's a humongous business, lending. Um, it's, it's, it's fantastic, right? I mean, there's always people who need money. There's people who want to lend money, and if you can do this via blockchain, the trust is done via the community. There's no more centralized party. So that is completely groundbreaking because it kind of disrupts this banking business, if you want to call it. Um, you have so-called exchangings. Instead of having a, a broker doing the exchange, you can do this decentrally, decentralized exchanging. And then the community exchanges it for you. You make a bit, you say, you know what, I want to exchange one Bitcoin for something else. And then the community brokers all that. And, and so basically what happens in DeFi is all these services Instead of having a bank or a government or or one individual, you have an entire community called the blockchain community kind of executing the entire deal.
0: Well, I kind of like the word DeFi because it sounds like defying the current system or the banking system, as you would like to call it, yeah. uh, or the, the government system even. In terms of marketing or branding, like the word DeFi is really cool. But what is true
2: decentralization? I mean, it's difficult, actually. Mm. I, I think true decentralization... And, and and we can also ask ourselves, is, is this something we actually want? So many people always think that true decentralization is, means actually everyone is equal, right? There's no one is, is better or worse. There's actually a set of rules that we all agree on and we just live by all those rules. I'm not 100% convinced that this is actually the state that we would love to have because it could either mean pure communism or the other side which we could discuss on a political spectrum actually goes in the back end curves and is anarchy. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is actually what you really want. So pure decentralization would mean no one is better or worse. Everyone is the same. We either have no rules or all of us agree on a set of rules. In in blockchain, we always call these protocols, the Bitcoin protocol. It's actually nothing else than a set of rules that we all agree on. Yeah, again, I'm not sure if this is actually what we really would want. I think what is the ideal scenario is to having a bit of a mix between centralized parties, because you always need leaders, right? You need people who take initiative, take the first step, um, who push stuff forward. Um, But then you need to kind of put power out of certain positions and out of certain ideas, because otherwise, it's very easy, right, to misuse that. Um, And and I think that's the ideal kind of uh, scenario.
0: Right, because there are people in the crypto space talking about being a sovereign individual and being, like, independent of the state. But that's, like, an extreme, right? And without going into, like, political explanations and all that. So, like, we kind of think that both systems will exist. Like, maybe the DeFi system will exist together with the banking system. No,
2: 100%. I I mean, you see this. DBS, they announced that they are issuing... it's a small amount, I think $15 million in debt on the Ethereum blockchain or 7500000 I million. I'm not exactly sure on the exact number. But so they're going this route right now, right? And I think that you will see this overlap of the traditional banks saying, you know what? Customers will always need someone to talk to. But on the other hand, they want to have certain guarantees for example, I as a bank cannot just take their money away, right? You yourself, you love to have someone that you can talk to and say, hey, can you help me out? I'm, I'm willing to pay a fee if you can help me out. But I don't want you to be able to just run away with my money. And and that is this kind of marriage between CFI and DeFi. And I think that is the future. And whatever company or institution governments, right, embrace that, they will win. The governments who will say, you know what, only what we have been doing over the last centuries is the right way, I think they're going to lose, just like with the internet, right? But those groups of people, and it's not governments, groups of people say only pure decentralization is the way forward. Good luck. Like, that's not going to work. A, a, a true decentralized system does not move. It's stagnant, right? There's stasis because it's so difficult to move anything forward. So the merger, that's the, I mean, that's that golden middle,
0: yeah. Okay, so let's, let's bring it back to current reality. So based on what I understand about decentralized finance is that there's no intermediaries. There's no banks. You and the other party are interacting directly in this relationship through a smart contract. And the smart contract lists all the terms of this borrowing or lending or whatever financial relationship that you have with each other. How do we get to this place? How do we get to DeFi?
2: Like, let's talk about the trends. Let's talk about blockchain. Like, how do we get to this new system? It all started October 31st, 2008, Halloween, when Satoshi published that white paper, right? And said, okay, let's create a peer-to-peer cash system without any intermediaries. And I'm proposing two things out of the DeFi world. The first one is creating value, which is creating money. There's no bank that dictates it. It's a mathematical algorithm. And at the same time, we can transfer that value and we can send it to someone else. And for about five years, these were the only two functions that we had. And then Ethereum came along and said, you know what? It's actually not the only kind of simple terms that we could have. We can expand that. We can do whatever. And suddenly we had lending. We had a smart contract that defined the rules. You put up a certain collateral. And for that collateral, as long as this collateral stays in a lock in a smart contract, you can withdraw other value from that collateral. And someone who delivers that value to you is being paid an interest from whatever you locked in there. And the only way how you can unlock this is if you put back, plus the interest, what you took out. And the other person doesn't have to trust you because there's this box with value inside And the entire blockchain algorithm ensures that you can't just run away. So I am insured I'm getting my interest of that. And so that was typical lending, right? And so Ethereum kind of had that. And that was very, very early on that that got started. One trend that really came up, and and I think that started about 2017. Um, Last year, 2020 was when this entire exchanging, DEX, liquidity mining, yield farming, that entire, these crazy hype words kind of started. And, And basically what's happening there is, Imagine you want to go from SING dollars to U.S. dollars. You always need someone who has the other side of the liquidity because it's very rare that you actually need just someone on the street who, all, who wants to go the other way. So if you want to go from SING dollars to U.S. dollars, you need someone at the same time wants to go from U.S. dollars to SING dollars. It's rare, not always there. So what you do is you go to a bank. And mm. what does the bank do? The bank just holds both sides. It has SING dollars and it has U.S. dollars. And for holding those two liquidity pools... It charges you a fee. It doesn't necessarily charge you the fee for the conversion. It charges you for providing that capital. And in a decentralized ecosystem, you can do the same. And now what's very interesting, anyone, you and I, can provide this liquidity. And we call this liquidity mining. So, for example, on Cake, if you go to our platform, cakedefi.com, you can put Bitcoin and DFI on there. And if you do this, the entire community pays you between 40 to 70% per year on this capital why because there's so much exchanging and so hefty transactions going on and basically what you're doing is you're taking the position of a bank or an exchange kind of brokerage and that entire concept started last year that got super super hot and yeah and and i think what's the next trend now is this so-called concept of decentralized tokenization so the idea here is this is the following imagine you have a tesla share instead of representing that Tesla share as a token on the blockchain, you say, you know what, there is no Tesla share, there's only a price. And that price is guaranteed by the community. If the Tesla share moves up, the price also moves up. Not because of the share, but because it's guaranteed, it's mirroring it. Mm. And the interesting concept now suddenly becomes you can invest in anything, whatever is represented in there, but not because you actually own it, but because you own the price. And the concept here is important because now suddenly no one can take this away from you. So the entire story about Wall Street bets and about all this cannot happen anymore because there's no one who can close. There's no one who can just say, you know what, you're not allowed to trade that price anymore. Because it's happening on the blockchain. It's completely decentralized. Now, there's downsides with that. The downside is you have no voting rights. You don't get dividends. But in most of the shares, it's actually not that relevant. Tesla, AMC, GameStop, and so on, they don't have dividends anyways. And most people don't care about the voting rights. But it ensures that you have a 24-7 access to that share and to that price feed, right? So if you say, you know what? Screw a lot of these investors. I'm going to hold that and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to ride this there's no one who can take it away from you anymore. And that's just extremely powerful um, going forward. And I see a lot of the trends here empowering yeah, the individual and taking a lot of power away here from some large institutions that have been pressuring or having used to setting a set a direction. I think that's going to be the super exciting use case this year. So you think that DeFi
0: did start from the point that Satoshi came out with Bitcoin. You know, I think when it comes to cryptocurrency, there's like a ladder of knowledge. Every time I feel that I understood it, like Mm -hmm. there's something new to learn, right? And it seems like DeFi is is the hottest keyword recently, Mm -hmm. as compared to three years ago, of course, while cryptocurrency is also gaining more mainstream attention right now. So we're talking about DeFi today. You gave us three use cases. Number one, you mentioned a DEX, which will stand for Decentralized Exchange. Mm -hmm. Correct. So it's like, on the centralized exchange, I'm going to the bank and the bank It's like an intermediary between me and you. And then we do our lending and borrowing. Or Binance in the crypto space, right? A large exchange. On the crypto space. In the case of a DEX, it's a direct relationship between me and you Mm -hmm. through a smart contract. Correct. So that's one. So
2: I can lend you some money. And of course, I get interest for it. No, that's, yeah, you don't really need a DEX for that. That's more lending contract. On a DEX, it's like, I give you one Bitcoin if you give me 10 ETH. And you lock this up for a fraction of a moment. And if you don't get the 10 ETH, the Bitcoin goes back to you if you get my 10 ETH, I get your Bitcoin. So I don't have to trust you that if I give you 10 ETH, I don't get your Bitcoin and you're not giving me the Bitcoin first and getting the ETH afterwards. It's basically right in this moment.
0: Because the protocol
2: manages that, right? Because when you borrow from me, you need to put up collateral. Is that correct? It's basically the community, right? So imagine there's a hundred people in the room, right? So let's imagine there's a hundred people and they all look at us. And so you and I sit there and I say, you know what? I'm going to give you a Bitcoin if you give me 10 ETH. Everyone listening and everyone says, yeah, listening. Okay, so here's the Bitcoin and it's like right in the middle of us, right? And you can't grab it because the community doesn't let you, right? Mm-hmm. There's 100 people, so you cannot battle 100 people. And then now you give me the ETH and the people are like, okay, great. Julian got this ETH, great. You can take the Bitcoin. All right.
0: So that's where liquidity pool comes in. Correct. Okay, let's talk about liquidity pool. Let's define it first.
2: Yeah, so basically... What I describe here is a very unlikely scenario because it means that I actually find you. I find you in this entire space of a person who wants to do exactly what I want to do, but the other way around. So I want to go from one currency into the other, and you coincidentally want to swap the exact same amount, but the other way around. And it's just super unlikely, right? It's possible, but it's unlikely. So the easier way is if we use that scenario now again of 100 people in a room and there's just two of us in the 100 people, all the other people, whoever wants to, right, puts the two currencies in front of us onto the table, Bitcoin and whatever, right? So let's use an example we have on on Cake DeFi, Bitcoin and DeFi, DeFi chain. Mm. Yeah, so these two are on the table. And so whoever wants to go from either Bitcoin to DeFi chain, or from DeFi chain into Bitcoin doesn't have to find someone else. There's actually a lot of people who already put the money on the table and said, if you put Bitcoin in, you can take the equivalent amount minus a small fee of DeFi chain out. If you want to go from DeFi chain to Bitcoin, you do the same thing. You put DeFi chain in, you can take Bitcoin out. But no one does that for free. No, because everyone says, why should I put my Bitcoin and DeFi chain in there? I'm locking up capital, right? So what happens is, People need to pay a transaction fee, and this transaction fee compounds, and so it gets uh, diversified, it gets distributed over all the people who put those currencies onto the table.
0: So that's that's where the pool comes in, because everyone's just chipping in, and we're using a pair of coins. In this case, you're using an example of like DeFi, correct. and the Bitcoin,
2: correct. And and so the more of this action is happening, the more fees are being collected by the people who are putting in, and that generates a really really high return. Or a very low return. It depends, right? So, at the moment, these returns are just super, super high. Sometimes go up to 100% per year. So, people that put in their funds, they can make 100% per year. Obviously, they're not guaranteed. They can go down. They can go up. They fluctuate.
0: Okay. So... I'm gonna go into one hundred percent because I think this number will raise some eyebrows among yeah. our listeners. So there's a there's a pool of two coins, a, a pair of coins, and then like people just chip in and so I'm providing liquidity to the pool and get some interest from it. I get like the base tokens or some other rewards, Correct. From it from the transaction fees as well. Correct. Well and some call it yield farming. And you know, yep. like whole the whole image of a farmer come into place and you know, like There the are hats. a lot of those
2: pictures on social media <laughs> yeah, where yeah, yeah. like yeah.
0: So that's yield farming, right?
2: So the yield farming comes into play where you now start stacking these ideas behind each other. So I'm gonna give you an example. So there's ideas where I can do that and I generate new returns. I use those returns, I take them and put them into the next idea. And so now I'm starting to kind of cascade those returns on top of each other. So I start with $1,000. I lock them up. I get some returns here. I use those returns right away, lock them up into the next thing. I get those returns, lock them up into the next thing. I take those returns, lock them up into the next thing. So yield farmers are those kind of people who kind of farm yield like returns and stack those ideas behind each other. So that's kind of the yield farming concept in the entire crypto space so that you're really optimizing and you're looking for all those protocols because sometimes some protocols don't work that well with each other because one works really well with a coin that you're getting. You can use that right away and lock it up into the next thing where you really maximize the returns. So sometimes you can then stack those returns really well where... A 70% plus a 30% can generate really like over 100%, where maybe one idea here gives you 80%, but the output, you can't really use it for anything else. So it's riskier, but higher return to use those two stacked after each other and get over 100% versus this one with 80%. But so one problem here is if something goes wrong, right? Suddenly an entire cascade... a house kind of, of cards? Yes, completely, right? right? So the entire cascade kind of... Uh, disappears. So I am, for example, I liquidity mine a lot. I think it's fantastic, but I don't stack those ideas behind each other. I don't leverage. I don't, to me, that's way too risky.
0: I I just think that's... Right. So a risky degen play would be to put some money as collateral, borrow some money based on that collateral, put it into a liquidity pool, and then just just continue that process, right?
2: Yeah. So you put it in, you borrow something against that, take that what you borrow, put it in there, and then whatever you're getting out here, use this to pay back their returns here. And so suddenly this entire thing can work really well for three months. And then crypto crash. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yes. So that's when you see all those, like when you go to the statistics and you see like people lost $15 billion. Like because of leverage, poof. right? Yeah. Okay. Like really lost. Not fl- market fluctuation, mm. right? Like capital went down. Liquidation? Complete liquidation, right? right? So like zero. Yeah, it's insane.
0: Okay, okay. So there's a, a few plays that you can do, right? For example, like we started off lending, borrowing, then we talk about liquidity mining, yeah. and then yield farming, which is like a playing with Lego blocks. Yes, yeah, so it's yeah, basically you putting
2: all those together, right? So you right. do you do lending here, you combine that with liquidity mining, and and like then suddenly you use some leverage here, you you arbitrage deal, those deals and so like stacking all this together, this concept is called uh, yield farming. Yield farming. No wonder yeah. they
0: say like being a farmer is like the most desired job nowadays. It's yeah. like, but manage your own risk. I think right. that's insane.
2: Yeah, I don't know, like Charlie Munger, right, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, kind of uh, partner always said, the three L's, right, that that bankrupt the man, ladies, liquor, leverage, right? So he always says no drinking, be careful with the ladies, and no leverage in finance. Because leverage can wipe you out
0: easily. If you have five times leverage, a 20% drop will mean 100%. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we have a few ways. What other ways are there to invest in DeFi?
2: I mean, These are the, the functions at the moment. Um, I mean, there are only seven DeFi functions. Um, creating value, transferring value. That's Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Creating and transferring. You have the exchanging. You have the lending. You have the tokenization. You have predicting of value. That's the entire kind of futures, options market. Um, it's c- closely tied together with tokenization. And then you have uh, yeah, reputation or identity of value. Um, that's a super... Futuristic concept, no one really knows yet how it works. Um, Augur, very old protocol, actually tried to solve that. Um, The idea behind it is how can you build up reputation or how can you build up an identity on a blockchain? Um, The biggest problem, if you think fundamentally, right, is how do you identify yourself or anything? How does a machine, an animal, or a human being identify themselves against a group of computers? Because that's what basically you do as a blockchain, right? And so the way we do it is we have a private key. This is a a, a randomly generated number, 80 digits. And so because the probability that someone else generated the same unique number is super unlikely. It's the same thing as we're all born with a fingerprint. No one does anything to their fingerprints. But the odds of two people having the same fingerprints is basically zero. it's the same thing in in this decentralized world. So everyone kind of uses this fingerprint as a private key. But the problem is... Your fingerprint, you cannot regenerate your fingerprint. It's not possible. So if you do anything illegal, you can't just go and say, okay, I want new fingerprints, and then you start from scratch. That doesn't work. Whereas in the blockchain world, you do anything stupid, you just generate a new private key. So in theory, you could generate as many online identities on a blockchain as you want. And so, I don't know, the the golden egg or the, the really unbelievable use case would be how can you kind of limit that so that you would stay anonymous so no one would actually know who you are but you would still have a unique blockchain identity no one knows how to really solve that there's a lot of approaches but that would be absolutely unique because then you would marry basically the best ideas out of a decentralized world you could separate the blockchain world from the physical world but you would still have this complete unique identity concept on there. You wouldn't need a lot of the exchanges. Suddenly, suddenly, humans would all be equal, right? Because it's not about passports anymore. It's not about which country you're from. It's really about building your reputation in that world. Yeah, there's, there's just no good solution to it.
0: Multiple identities, like one that is more anonymous, one that's public, one
2: that is different versions of yourself. on the internet. I mean, we're talking about finance, right? Mm. So we're really not talking about gaming or we're really talking about finance here. So let's say you meet this number online, right? This number is, let's say, 283. And it says, hey, I want a million dollars from you. And I'm not putting up any collateral, but I put my good name to it. You'd be like, are you insane? Who are you? Yeah, exactly. Right. But that's the concept of the real world. You go to a bank, right? And you say, hey, look, I need a loan. I'm not gonna use this for property. I'm gonna use this for my car. I need to pay for something personal, right? The bank says, okay, let me see your income. Let me see your credit history. Let me see all these things. And based on that, the bank makes a judgment call to give you a loan or doesn't give you a loan. So it's actually completely a different concept. And the way this works is because you have skin in the game with the bank where number 283 on the blockchain has no skin in the game. Because if you give him a million dollars or her or it or whatever, it just runs away with the million dollars and generates a new idea, I don't know, 586, right? And so now it's a completely new idea. And, and so that's the major issue. But if you could solve that, then suddenly all these actors on a blockchain could actually make mathematical calculations on what is the probability that you will actually pay back a loan or that you are actually creditworthy or... Yeah, your vote or your idea, how much is that worth based on a lot, a lot of factors. And again, there's a lot of people who criticize such a system, right? Because it would be a crazy meritocracy on one hand. On the other hand, it could be super difficult for someone actually to climb that ladder. And then others say, don't worry, it will never work. Um, It's super hypothetical. No one knows. I mean, no one knows if that ever gonna work oh, the next we, we don't years, have to please. go so
0: far because like based on what we've just shared, like i think there are enough toys oh, to man, play with already by far like, i i can understand like how is it like for a retail investor to look at you know all these different
2: tools that you can yeah. use to so-called make money yeah i mean and that's where right and again i want to be super transparent here there's several companies who offer such services cake defi just really focused on making this super easy and user-friendly and for that specific reason right so that people just say you know what like we are blockchain agnostic, we are project agnostic, we, we integrate Ethereum, Bitcoin, DeFi chain, Dash, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, it doesn't matter, right? So we are blockchain agnostic. We just look at the best features and ideas. People in theory could do them all themselves. None of the services that we offer are like offered by us. They are actually offered by a blockchain and we just aggregate them and make it super user friendly for the person to actually get 100% per year. And I think that's exactly that point.
0: Let's talk about that, 100% per year. So
2: we we'll first have to define APY. Could you help us? So there's a difference between APR and APY. APR just means it's the return you're actually getting. Um, APY is if you compound that return. There's always a big discussion, what number should you use, what number should you show. And, and there's no right or wrong, because you could say, oh, it should actually be APR, the actual return, um, that's basically not compounded. Um but that's very, very misleading sometimes because, as Albert Einstein said, the like compounded interest is the eighth wonder of the world. And so especially in, in yield farming, for example, or in liquidity mining, the compounding is what makes it so insanely powerful, right? And so many times that's how you see returns where people put in $1,000 and they take out $100,000. It's really because they compound it, right? Whereas if they would have only done the APR, they would have made, I don't know, maybe $5,000. So the differences are dramatic, right? So yeah, that's where this is coming from, APR, APY. All right, so for common understanding, like it's
0: your yield, it's your return, APY, yeah. and I'm looking at 100%, I'm also looking at a thousand, a few thousand percent. Yeah. How does it work? Like how do you get 100% or even like a thousand percent on certain pool?
2: Um, on the one hand, it depends on popularity. So the more popular a pool is, Um, the lower the return because you are sharing it with more people in the room. So if there's three people in the room and it's just the two of us, so there's one other person providing liquidity. That's risky. Yeah, but that person makes all the money, right? He's the only person in the room. Like, of risk, only person in the room. Now imagine there's a thousand people in the room. Obviously, the same return is not shared with one person. It's shared with a thousand people. So suddenly the return goes down dramatically, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing, it depends on how old or how young the project is. The younger the project in percentages, the higher the return. If you think of Bitcoin, at the very beginning, right, there was the first block, which was 50 Bitcoins. The second block was, again, 50 Bitcoin. So if you look at the return that miners would have made in Bitcoin, and after the very first block, it's like billions of percent, because there's such a small amount of coins only, and the coins that would be coming over the next year, right, every 10 minutes, 50 Bitcoins, so you can multiply that up, that's like, over the first year, is like uh, 2.5 million Bitcoins, right, and over 50, so the returns would be insane. But today, with 18 million Bitcoins in existence, and only 6.25 Bitcoins every 10 minutes, the return is now 2% per year right? That has a, a massive difference. And then obviously, a lot of that comes into play with risk. A lot of that comes into play of expectations by the community. So of course, the younger project, the fewer people, the riskier, but also the higher the return. The older, the more substantiated, the larger, the lower the return, the lower the risk.
0: So we got to take note that the APY you see today might not be the same API that you get tomorrow because Definitely not. the number fluctuates every day, right? Definitely. I as, mean, it,
2: it fluctuates no hourly. As more people join the pool, like It it might go down. It might go down. It might go up. Over the trend, you actually, and that is interesting, you actually want the APY to go down because that means more and more people come in, the project gets larger, right? So it sounds counterintuitive, but actually it makes it more reliable. It makes it safer. So, yeah, projects where the returns are stagnant or actually go up, I would be really a bit worried. Like you want to have slightly decreasing returns because that just shows that the project is constantly growing. There's more and more people. Um, It's actually even it's a bit counterintuitive, but it's actually really, really good.
0: Well, it's still not guaranteed that the project is safe, but at least you feel that more people are locking their money in. Hold up.
1: What was that?
0: Okay, so we're looking at the risk factor.
2: There's mainly three risks. The very first risk is always that of the project uh, as a whole. Um, And that project as a whole uh, depends on who are the parties who actually kind of initiated it, who is behind it. These are researchable factors, right? And so these are all things that, that you can do due diligence on. The second risk is technical risk. And the problem with the technical risk is it's very difficult to predict that. Super, super difficult. I would almost say no one. This is almost researchable. Because whenever it's researched, it's either used by a black hat, meaning he's going to attack it, or it's going to be kind of shown by a white hat, and he's actually going to get a a reward for that. So for 99.9999%, that risk is so difficult to gauge. That, that technical risk, right? The first one, it's the background, it's the team. It's, these are all things you can research, and these are all, like, you should actually do research on that.
0: Well, e- even if they
2: are anonymous, that like, you can still kind of do research on very the Very few projects are anonymous. Yeah, very few. And even if they are anonymous, there's always some pseudonym, right? So with Satoshi, right? Satoshi right. was a pseudonym, but, like, Satoshi was super well-respected, even though he was pseudonym in that cryptographer community, Right. Okay. So, of course, I mean, it is still riskier than if someone shows their face. But yeah, that second risk is so tricky. Right. It's so difficult to to gauge it. And in in general, right, there's projects who have more issues there um, simply because of how they are structured. For example, Ethereum um, and a lot of the Ethereum kind of copies, Binance, Smart Chain, um, all these projects, they have a bit more risk because they allow anything. it's just a bit more risk that doesn't mean that something happens right it just means it has a higher risk bitcoin for example um defi chain all the bitcoin related forks they have a lower risk why Mm -hmm. because they are non-turing complete so they allow for very few things to happen right so again it doesn't give guarantees Mm -hmm. bitcoin can still have a bug but it's just very unlikely for bitcoin to have a bug but ethereum every once in a while they discover something that's really really major right so the, the technical side. Help us understand non-Turing complete. So Turing complete is what pretty much all the computers that we use are. That means the way they function is that the programmers that program a uh, program, they can define for it to do anything they want. So whatever they want the computer to do, they can do. It's basically meant that the, the reading head can move in either direction. So And it can do as many steps as it wants. So that's just a computer kind of computer science kind of language. Non-Turing Complete has predefined steps that the computer can do. And all you can do is you can use those predefined modules, and you have to put those predefined modules, and you have to work with those. So imagine it this way. If you are an architect and you would work Turing Complete, you get an empty canvas, and you can start drawing whatever you want. If you would be non-Turing Complete, you would already have All the rooms kind of decided in. You would already have the the walls of the house. And all you could do is you could put some furniture in there. And the furniture, you can't even design it freely. You have, like, predefined symbols. So all you would have to be able to do is kind of place them in there, right? So obviously, if you are an architect that has Turing complete, so you have a, a white canvas, then you can do whatever. But you can really screw the house up. Someone that has already predefined walls and the rooms are predefined and the symbols of the couch and the bed is predefined... You could still try to screw up the house, but at the end, there's not much to screw up anymore, right? So, um, big, big difference. So, in general, non-Turing-Complete blockchains are less riskier, but less possibilities, fewer possibilities. Mm. Um, Turing-Complete, all the possibilities in the world, and a lot of risks. It's always a trade-off. Always. So this is where technical
0: risk come in. Yes. And you're talking about the third risk.
2: The third risk is impermanent loss risk. And that is always the pair that you provide liquidity for. And uh, the risk here is how volatile are those pairs against each other? Imagine a bank providing US dollars and Sing dollars. If those two currencies always move with each other, man, there's no risk for the bank, right? But if those things start moving against each other, there's massive risk because suddenly their holdings on one can decrease and the other one can increase. And that's what's called impermanent loss. And the reason why it's impermanent is because in theory, it could count the balance again.
0: Right. right? Give it some more time. It could count the balance it back could. to a neutral state. Correct. All so right. it's
2: just so what they always say is it's just a matter of time. But man, just a matter of time can be 100 years. Right. That's why they call it impermanent loss. Um, you make it permanent as soon as you say that's it. I'm going to take my money off the table.
0: Okay, so back to the room example. with 100 people in this room. Some of us put money into this pool, and then these two coins are moving at different levels. Maybe one is decreasing in value, the other is increasing. And therefore, when I want to take it out, at a point in time when I want to take it out, I, I don't get the same value of... Correct. In your example,
2: USD with Sing dollars. Correct. Okay. Yep. okay, so that's impermanent loss. Impermanent loss, so IL, they always abbreviate it as IL. And these are the three main risks. So you always have the, the project and the team, you have the technical, the project in the team that's like analyzable, right? Again, doesn't mean you, it's super easy to be analyzed, but it's analyzable. The technical risk is just so difficult. Most people just say, you know what, if you are going for Turing Complete blockchains, just expect there's a higher risk. So you would want to have higher returns. If you go for non-Turing Complete, they are a bit safer. So you you're okay with a bit lower returns because you have a bit of a trade-off there. And then impermanent loss, again, man, there's pools, right, that go from one dollar stable coin to another dollar stable coin so just a different kind of brand if you want to call it but it's all dollar stable coins so they should actually be one dollar for example they go from tether which is one form of a stable coin to die which is another dollar form mm-hmm. so in theory there should be no impermanent loss because one dollar is a dollar right so these should a- actually track each other all the time but there are insane scenarios where suddenly the trust in these stable coins goes so far apart right, that the impermanent loss in there is like 25%. So if in that moment you want to exit, dude, you're losing 25% in that very moment, right? So normally these pools then get together again, and people here, they make maybe half a percent, right? So that's the annual return that they're actually making. So it's very low, and sometimes you have these crazy scenarios where people need to exit a position right when they have these 25% differences. It's it's just absolutely bonkers. So by definition, a stable coin is a, a coin that is pegged to the US dollar. Oh, pegged. Uh, let's define it a bit more general. That's pegged to something, whatever that, that something is. It doesn't have to be a dollar. It can be anything. So you can have a stable coin on gold. You can have a stable coin on sing dollars. You can have a stable coin on the US dollar. You could have it on... Whatever you, in theory, a stable coin on a Tesla share is actually a stable coin. Ah,
0: I see, got it. So you put into a a stable coin liquidity pool, for example, LP, and then you're like, this should be safe. You know, stable coins, they're not supposed to deviate much from its core. No
2: impermanent loss. And then what
0: you say happened, the pegging, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Suddenly they move so against each other. It's just, and then again, 99% of people don't have to exit the position. But maybe someone needs liquidity right now because they're yield farming. Right, and they have like they stack those returns over like ten layers, and so now suddenly they need the liquidity. They it's like a,
0: it's almost like a margin
2: call. Correct, it is like a margin call. Right, they need to exit the position right now, and then they're taking a twenty-five percent loss. So this is how you
0: can get wrecked in the cryptocurrency <laughs> really world, wrecked. right? I mean, I mean huge gains possibly, Dude. possibly, yes, but huge risk as well. And because there are so many projects, so many protocols nowadays that like you really have to, like you're talking about technical risks, it's really hard to assess those, right? I really
2: think the technical risk is so difficult. I stopped yield farming or liquidity mining on Turing Complete blockchains for that reason. Because they have so many issues. So Ethereum started, suddenly they had all these rock pulls, and then they had all these like uh, smart contract issues. Then what happened... Binance Smart Chain came, right? And then Binance Smart Chain, now suddenly they're having all these issues. And so now they bring in all these security firms to actually analyze their smart contracts and analyzing the blockchain because they have it every single day. I mean, they called it the Binance Rock Pull Chain, right? So that people constantly got basically the rock pulled.
0: Yeah, so someone pulls the rock from under your feet Correct. and you fell and, and, fall. and they yeah. take your money.
2: Because it was so insane because every single day there was someone who got hacked and not by like tens of thousands of dollars, like tens of millions of dollars. It's just insane. That's why I'm like, no more Turing Complete blockchains for me. Um, I focus more on the non-Turing Complete uh, when it comes to the liquidity mining and the lending and so on. Just, yeah, maybe I make some lower returns on certain things. But, dude, like, I, I'd rather make a little bit lower returns than, yeah, losing a lot of money on So a Turing Complete blockchain would be like Ethereum? Ethereum, Binance Smart Chain, uh, Cardano, uh, Polkadot, um Am yeah, I missing any of the larger ones? I don't think so. Yeah, these but are, the, these the, are the big the, names. And yeah. non touring would
0: be our you know, yeah. grandfather of all crypto, yeah. Bitcoin, Bitcoin.
2: yeah. And obviously all the derivatives of it, right? Stellar Lumen is also going now the non touring complete route. Um, yeah, Dash, DeFi chain, all these kind of, uh, Litecoin, all these kind of uh, uh, ideas here. So if you invest into the touring complete blockchains, which I also do, then I just invest into the coin. And I hold the coin. So there I'm not generating any cash flow. But on the non-Turing completes, there I actually generate cash flow. So this is how you mitigate your risks in DeFi. Correct. Because then I'm like, you know what? Ethereum is going to do super well. I believe Ethereum is going to do well. But I just don't want to start risking my ETH there in like some really kind of questionable things. And yeah, maybe I'll make 50% per year, but probably I'll lose it all. Right? So I just say, you know what? I'll just hold the ETH and that's it. Um, and, And I'll get the capital gains there. Yeah, so that's just a bit of the trade-offs that uh, that I'm making. Yeah.
0: All right. I think this is a good point in time to ask you about where do you see crypto and Bitcoin price
2: movement in, well, let's say, let's take second half of this year, <laughs> 2021. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's beginning of June. Uh, Bitcoin just had um, the it's, crash. its worst months in the history, uh, minus 37% in a single month. Not unexpected. I had several interviews in end of March, beginning of April, where I was like very cautious uh, for the entire crypto ecosystem, just saying, hey, um, I myself am moving away from the super high risk kind of project. Really focusing on very few ideas, right? Taking some money on the table, just be a bit rather safe than sorry. I didn't expect the minus whatever 40, 50 percent setback. I wanna admit that, right? I had thought maybe a 20, 25 percent, um, but still, so not no surprise. If I would have to have like a crystal ball and it's always difficult to make predictions about this. That's the future. right. I'm gonna take this audio clip <laughs> half a year later and check yes. back. <laughs> so, if we don't see an insane catalyst right now to either the down or to the upside, um, and we saw El Salvador just announced yesterday um, that they are thinking about making Bitcoin legal tender. Paraguay yeah. came second country who was doing going this route. Again, I don't think that's much of an event, but long term it will have an effect. So if there's no catalyst to the upward downside, I think we're going to see a calm summer. September, October is going to be the pump again. So that's going to be the hype cycle right now. So September, October, it's going to be the run-up. And I think we can see a run-up to over 100,000. Right. Maybe a bit higher, but I think 100,000 would be the safe. Place your bets, ladies and gentlemen. That's yes. Dr. Julian's crystal ball prediction.
0: But it's, it's based on what you understand about this that's industry. pure about
2: speculation. This. I've got right. no freaking clue. <laughs> like... If this is going to happen... Not financial advice. No Do your financial own research. Advice. That's my own mental model. So that would be... Like, I'm expecting a calm summer. Maybe we're going to see a bit of, on, the, on the lower side, on the 30,000 over the summer. Maybe we see a bit on the 40s, maybe scratching into the 50s. But I just don't I don't expect that. I think it's going to be really sidewards, very boring. August, that should be kind of the waking up. September, October, that's kind of the timeline. We also see another
0: trend whereby there are more institutional investors coming in, you know, companies coming in. At the moment, I
2: don't see the data for that. Mm. So, I, like, whatever data I see, I think it's a bit... People are just a bit more cautious. I think at the moment, especially the, uh, with the ESG, the environmental, social, governance kind of movement, especially around Bitcoin with the dirty mining, it's, uh, yeah, Bitcoin just needs to get their, their stuff sorted there. Uh, needs to get their PR sorted, needs to make sure that the... People really understand uh, what, what's really happening, right? That, that Bitcoin is actually taking a lot of the excess energy that's being produced um, and kind of takes that out of the grid, allows uh, and, and will allow for development of, of greener energy, actually. And, and I think that just has to be communicated better. And, and I think that's w- un- until when a lot of institutions right now, also governments, are probably going to be a bit more hesitant, cautious, right? Because they're like, hey, you know what? There's such a strong push for ESG, righteously. And uh, it's, like, super important today um, with all the capitalism that's going on. People are like, okay, we need to take care of the environment. We need to understand what's happening socially. And we want to have good governance, right? So it shouldn't be the, like, uh, like dictatorship. or, or like, There should be good governance. And there's a strong focus towards that, right? So companies, governments, they will kind of watch out for that because there is pushback all the time. We saw that with Tesla, right? We saw that with Elon Musk really pulling back, like doing a 180 and... Yeah. Within like a, a month or so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of stories on what actually happened here. And I think the... To me, the most... Uh, I mean, that was this anonymous video that just came... I don't know if you've seen that, yeah. Yep. So that was this anonymous video that came out. And I mean, I think it brought up some good points. I think the main point to me is really... Tesla, I mean, that's very viable, right? Tesla is making a lot, a lot of money off uh, the carbon credits uh, in the U.S., and it's a massive revenue source. And I just think that the um, U.S. government just said, hey, look, like, we can just cut you off of those, right? So the U.S. government knows that, like, Tesla having Bitcoin on the balance sheet, accepting Bitcoin against Teslas, there is a certain competition to the dollar. I don't see them as competing, but there is. And they're just like, dude, you got to, like... Turn this around So yeah right. Or maybe it wasn't Even the US government Maybe it was A, a large shareholder Maybe it was An a, a important board member Right You don't know So I, we
0: can only speculate Because we're not Elon Musk But wait He has your book He's read a, <laughs> He's read a book I don't know if you read it But he has it He was definitely holding it In some
2: events Yeah South by Southwest 2018 I think Yeah Ah okay, okay So that's You two have a bit of history History there So he has my book I don't know if you read it I doubt that he read it Just for the Yeah um, he had it on stage. That was pretty cool. Okay, so
0: as a retail investor, like, what would you tell them about having crypto as part of your portfolio allocation?
2: So I think Bitcoin especially has to be part of your portfolio allocation. We can discuss how much. I think depending on your age, your ability to generate cash flow. Risk profile. Yeah, your risk profile. Um, it can be from anywhere from a percent uh, all the way up to 20, 30%. Uh, just be aware this. It's just super volatile. I mean, you saw this right now, minus 50% within a month, right? So just be super careful there. But especially if you go like by the mathematical models, a lot of them suggest like 6% is like a super nice optimum from the volatility against its returns. Um, It's like coming from these so-called Sharpie ratios where you match those against each other. So the the downside volatility to the upside returns, that's what's measured here. And so 6% in a portfolio in Bitcoin tends to do really, really well. Nice diversifier, non-correlated to pretty much any other asset class. So it's I think it makes a lot of sense. And then if you go from from Bitcoin and you diversify into other coins, only do this if you really know what you're doing. I think to invest in Bitcoin, sign up with one of the large exchanges, with the larger platforms, right? I don't think you need to be like the super expert. I think it's more like if you invest into an ETF, right? And you're like, which ETF should I use? You know what? I'll just use I don't know, an MSCR world, like a global index, right? Or I use like an S&P 500, the 500 largest US companies. I don't think there will be many people who would say, oh, what what a stupid move, right? Investing into an MSCR world. A lot of people will tell you, hey, you can probably do better, but I don't think a lot of people will tell you, like, man, like you're wrecked. Like no one will say that, right? I think with Bitcoin putting 6% in there, I think it's a similar kind of approach. And only then from there, if you then say, you know what? Like MSCI World or a large index, not what I want. Let me let me get into the actual companies. That's like a total different ball game, right? Then you have to really understand what you're doing. And I think in crypto, it's exactly the same thing. So, by far, I would not invest into any of those meme coins that we're seeing up uh, popping up right now. You know, what I mean, like you can make loads of money, but you can lose it all. So just be aware of that. In Bitcoin, I think that's way less likely, um, especially over the last months. Bitcoin did. So much better than all the other coins just because they were. I mean, they got completely hammered. There's very few coins who actually outperform Bitcoin, so yeah, just kind of keep this in mind a bit. Mm. So, if you're buying altcoins, which is any coin apart from Bitcoin, yeah,
0: you're gonna make sure it outperforms Bitcoin, right? If not, what's the point? Why is there just whole? Yeah. Bitcoin. So,
2: I don't like this uh, distinguishment as much anymore. So, I go more either uh, talk about large caps, mid caps, and like the small caps. I, I-, I like doing this. Um, So to me, the large caps is like Bitcoin all the way to maybe 10 or 20. So that's, to me, the large caps. Large caps did really well um, over the last month. I think they really held up well. Um, Mid caps, yeah, the small caps were the big losers, which makes sense, right? It's just like in stocks. Um, or the other thing you can do is talk more about sectors, so you can have the nFT sector, you can have the meme coin sector, you can do all the the touring complete blockchains, you can have the so-called centralized exchange coin sector, you can have the decentralized exchange coin ch- uh, sector. so yeah, I mean, with all that, if you look at the last month, the large caps, they performed by far the best um, if you look at Large coins would be like Bitcoin, Ethereum. Correct. Uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum. Uh, you would have uh, Polkadot did really well. Um, you had Cardano who did really, really well. Um, yeah, I mean, then there's a couple of coins. That, I don't know. I think they're a bit trickier. I think, for example, XRP is always a bit tricky. Litecoin, Bitcoin Cash, very, very tricky. I invest, I mean, obviously I invested a lot in DeFi Chain. Did also really well. A lot of yield farming, liquidity mining. Solana. Um, Polymath, Matic These are the larger kind of Projects there that did Really, really well, mm. I think uh, Poly Did 120% over the last months Right, where Bitcoin is minus 40 So um, DeFi Chain did I, it Did like 10% or something Where Bitcoin did whatever, right Minus 40, so a couple of like. So to me what I like doing is Really diversify in more the sectors And I don't see it more as A Bitcoin versus altcoins But to me the way I see it if, if you just want to invest in crypto, I would just invest in Bitcoin. That's it. I would not start diversifying. I would only diversify if you're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Like the MSCI world or the S&P 500, ah, that's way too boring for me. I really want to pick my Amazon. Stop or- picking yeah.
0: Okay. All right. Okay. So where do you see the DeFi space heading towards next?
2: Two near-term trends. Um, the decentralized tokenization, tr- creating those synthetical kind of prices. I think that's massive. Um... Also on KT5, that's actually the next project we're integrating in Q3, so not this quarter, not in June, but next quarter. Um, that's that's super important. And then the other thing is the interoperability. Um, you see so many projects now, and, and so many blockchains, and like being able to kind of communicate among those c- communities and connecting. I think that's gonna be, um, I think that's gonna be a really important part. Not sure if, if if that's gonna happen this year, but I think for definitely next year. Um, that's important because um, every kind of blockchain has its own strengths and and, and also weaknesses and and sometimes a, a strengths like inherently creates a weakness. So just like a Turing complete blockchain, you can do anything, but also a lot of risks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Okay. So the strengths creates the weakness. Um, whereas a non Turing complete blockchain, not that many options. Not that many risks, right? But secure. Yeah, secure. Mm-hmm. So many times, right, connecting those is really, really interesting. Also, you have more privacy-focused blockchains where you have options where you can kind of have way less transparency, right? So you can actually uh, do certain things in a private way. Um, and so you want to maybe not do everything there because that's also a bit shady, right? You, like, it, it doesn't make sense to to hide everything, right? But on the other hand, you don't want to do everything transparently, right? You, you don't, like... You wanna have your own four walls, right? Where you can do stuff that no one needs to know. But then, like, there are certain things that you don't want, like, everyone does because you wanna know what's happening in certain meetings actually by law, right? Uh, You wanna have transparency over certain things, but everyone has this common sense that there should be privacy. And the same on blockchains, so, yeah. And and, and it's not possible to do the same thing in in kind of the same uh, setup. So you have this interoperability.
0: Hey, I hope you learned something useful today and I truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconuts. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our socials, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description. If you love us and want to help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Sign up for our members' backend for more investment-related content, live discussions, curated content, and most importantly, your commitment to us is a step forward for us to continue creating great content focused on you rather than advertisers. For more information, check out thefinancialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead, stay tuned next week, and remember, personal finance can be chill, clear, and sustainable for all. I have three questions that's more of a personal nature. What is a
2: core life principle that you hold close to? I I truly believe in a growth mindset. And, And what I mean with that is, if you put your focus to something and you really work hard on something, you can do so many things. And I just believe that most people maybe say yes to that, but they really don't live up to that. In my life, I had three major steps. I was a professional kite surfer for almost 10 years, completely different to what I did afterwards. I became a medical doctor, completely separate. And afterwards, I became a business owner. And our company is now worth a couple hundred million dollars, right? It's completely different than what I did before. And the only reason it works is because every single time along the way, I had to learn a lot of new things. I had to be completely outside of my comfort zone. I had to look like a total idiot every single time. And most people just don't want to do that because they like being really good at what they are, and then they don't want to move out of it. I still remember the very first time I was in a in hospital, it was like after half a year or a year of, of studying. And I remember when the doctor just asked me, what organ are we looking at? And I thought, I had no clue. I had no freaking clue. I didn't know if that was a lung, a liver. What was this, right? And he just made fun of me in front of the entire staff, right? But at the end, that's what you have to go through. At the moment, I, I, I started playing golf, right? So, man, I look like a total idiot, right? Because I'm new at it, so who wants to do that? So if you're so successful in so many other things. But I think that's always the real joy in life, I always feel.
0: You literally plucked yourself from your comfort zone and throw yourself into the deep end. Yeah. And you did it at least twice. Yeah. In terms of your career path, always. at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the growth mindset you're talking about. What is one piece of financial advice which you feel needs to be further propagated?
2: It's not about being right. It's about not being wrong. That's so massive. Like, really, make like understand that. Um, Buffett always taught that. Um, it's not about getting the best return. It's about not going to zero. And anyone who uses leverage is exactly going for that, right? They want to maximize their returns by risking going to zero. And the problem is whatever percentage you compound from zero stays zero. Right, So you can never recover from that. So the trick is, and, and, and that's financially very interesting. If you look at Buffett, he was like always seen as the wealthiest investor ever. The curious part is actually, the reason he became so wealthy is because he has been investing now for so long. He, I think he became a billionaire at age 50. And, and don't forget, that was when he was already like 35 years of compounding. And after age 50... Like, yes, he's now over 100 billion, but actually, don't forget, he's like 90 now. So, 40 years, right, of compounding. Actually, the rate of these compounding is about 20% per year. This, like, is actually not that low when you talk to a lot of the millennials who are like, oh, I need to make 1,000% a year. 10x. Correct, right? But the problem is, he does this every single year. And he does that not by trying to be right? But he does that by trying not to be wrong and if you go with that approach you have a way higher chance of winning because suddenly it's not about picking the best it's about avoiding the worst whenever i invest today people are like oh i have a coin that performs way better i'm like that's great for you but i just don't want to have the worst coin i don't want to have a coin that goes to zero right if i have a coin that just does 30 percent per year I'm totally happy with that Right I don't need 300% I'm happy if I get 100% It's not what I need And I think so many people They're so like Short term focused, So stressed out That they need to get rich So quick And many times it's, It just backfires
0: It's like financial advice Trickling into life advice Which is useful Which <laughs> yeah. is very useful Which part of your life Are you giving Additional focus right now?
2: Ah, oh, man I'm a young father uh, My How son old? is Eight months Oh so. that's young yeah. <laughs> Oh, it's a whole new challenge. So if I, if there's one thing where I always feel I have no freaking clue and I don't know what to do next uh, and nothing prepares you for it, it's uh, being a father. Wow. It's, yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is I think no one ever is going to tell you all you did well. Uh, You only see it from how your child kind of turns out. Um, Nothing, like seriously, nothing lights up a day better than... When you see this complete innocent smile of a kid. Like it's so pure. Um yeah. It it, it give, puts away a lot of the the stress and, and other things. So yeah. Has it changed
0: your mindset or approach to business or in life?
2: It has changed my emotional side a lot. Um, I used to be super left-brained, so super rational. Logical. When it, super when it came to, like, I don't know, bad news or, like, like bad luck of people. And, like, now I'm like, holy crap. You know, whenever I hear, like, those crazy life stories, it, it touches me completely differently. Also, I, I've always donated, and I've been donating whenever, since I've been making good money. And, now my donations have completely changed right so I change I, I donate a lot to single mothers uh, I donate a lot to uh, babies or kids that that really have some yeah just they they're born and and they really like they, they just weren't lucky when they when they were born right and 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 I consider myself super lucky I mean I have no major kind of issue right my son is super lucky right I mean there's nothing that I could do about it right I mean like, that's the first thing, right? You He comes out and you're like, wow, you know, he has 10 toes, 10 fingers, looks healthy. And it's like, you know, it's there's, you, you, there's nothing you can really do about that, right? And so that's just so much luck. And so whenever I see that other parents are not that lucky, and it's pure luck. Yeah, I just, I, I feel I need to give back to that, right? Because I was lucky in that side. So I don't know. A year ago, I would have never said that answer. And that's the answer I have now. It's, it, it, I, and I would have never expected me to, to have such an answer. That's
0: beautiful. So let's wrap up this interview and so we can go back to your baby. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Julian. Thank you for your time. Thanks, man. All right. Le- pleasure. Thank you.
1: Hold up.